get right into things today. Uh, we are doing a series, kind of doing some teaching through the book of Genesis, a series called Patriarchs. We're looking at the lives of Abraham, particularly right now we're in the life of Abraham. And uh, we, we're calling this the faith in the failings of our fathers. Sometimes when we come to the Bible, we look at the characters in the Bible as heroes, people we are to emulate. And, and particularly today, as we get into the text today, we're going to find there's some difficulty with that. We, we're reading a really difficult, difficult passage today. I was talking to a, a woman this week. She's not a believer. And she comes to church. And one of the things she said is, I come to church even though I'm not yet a Christian because there's very few places in our culture today that we, we, we go to that challenge us, challenge our thinking. As Canadians, we tend to, um, we tend to tell each other what we think we want to hear, and we tend to put ourselves into places where we're only going to be exposed to what we want to hear. And she actually said, I'm not yet a Christian, but I go to church because I want to put myself in places that are going to challenge me. And this, this chapter we're going to look at today is, is a challenging chapter. And so, uh, Lord, I pray that just as we go into this today, you help us to, to wrestle with this. And I pray, God, that my words that uh, I speak will not, will not be, uh, no one will stumble over my words, but we will be challenged by your word today. Um, in your name we pray. Amen. So we're in Genesis chapter 16. Uh, if you have a Bible or have one on your phone, you can turn to Genesis 16. Otherwise, there's some Bibles in the seats in front of you, a blue one. We should be on page, I think, around 11, 10 or 11 in those blue Bibles. But I'm going to read to you the full story. Listen carefully and read along, and then we're going to kind of work through it a little bit today. And we're going to read the whole chapter of Genesis 16. Genesis 16 begins... Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And so after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt upon her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. And Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her, Hagar, found her by a stream of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son and will call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. And therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy, the well of the living one who sees me. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son 
And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. I can't see suddenly. You can pray for my contact lens. I'll go off of my remembrance of what my notes are. It's a tough story. It's a really tough story. Before we get into this story, I need, I'm going to tell you a different story. Okay? So before we get into this story, I want to tell you a different story. And the story I want to tell you actually begins in chapter 15, what we looked at last week. Um, in chapter 15, the story began in, in, in verse 14 of chapter 15, where God says to Abraham something about his descendants, something about his children whom he's going to father. And he has this vision, this dream, and in this vision he hears the Lord say this to him. And the Lord says to him, in verse 14, he says, sorry, verse 13, the Lord said to Abram, know for certain your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. I want to tell you this story about the children of Abraham, the children of Israel. And I want you to understand today, as we start out here, imagine what is the outcome of this promise that, Ab- that God has said to Abram. What is the outcome of this is that there are lives, people living or being born, living and dying under the oppression of slavery. He says, for 400 years, your people, your children are going to be afflicted and oppressed. They're going to be strangers in this nation. And I want you to think through this, the ramifications of that. That for hundreds of years, people were being born, living, and dying under the oppression of slavery. Slavery and oppression are all that they know. They wake up, they're slaves. They go to bed, they're slaves. They have no hope. They've given up. It's 400 years. They can't imagine freedom. Yet they are crying out in their tears that God will rescue them and deliver them. And then God does something. God God rescues them. God raises up Moses and rescues them from their oppressors. Rescues them from their enslavers. Right? And they are experiencing freedom. They're experiencing deliverance. And they flee from Pharaoh, and they flee into the wilderness. Imagine what they are thinking. Imagine what they are thinking about Egypt, imagine what they are thinking about Pharaoh, and imagine what they are thinking about that time of their lives when they are living under an oppressor. Now, the children of Abraham, God brings out into the wilderness and brings into this land that he's going to show them. But I want to stop right there when the children of Israel are in the wilderness And I want to ask two questions. If you, if you're the children of of Abraham in the wilderness, right? If you could go back and say anything you could to your former self when you were living under that oppression, what would you say? If there's any message you could go back in time and send to you who were under that enslavement and oppression, what message would you send back to yourself? And the second question is, right now, if you were to return, and if you were able, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the might of God, to impress upon any message upon Pharaoh's heart, what message would you have for Pharaoh? I'm going to suggest to you that the message that you would say to your former self living under oppression and the message that you would say that you would pray that would be impressed upon Pharaoh's heart, I'm going to suggest to you that there's one in the same message. And that's the title of the sermon today. 
God hears and God sees. The message to the one who is suffering under oppression needs to hear. God hears your cry. God sees your hurt. And the message that the Pharaoh needs to hear is one and the same. God sees you. God knows the thought of your heart and the wickedness within. God sees and God hears. The word of comfort to the afflicted is a word of terror to the afflictor. Now let's get back into this Genesis 16. (laughs) Genesis 16 begins with the hardest message. Genesis 16 begins with a message that would speak, and and listen, this is not an easy message to hear. It begins with the message that the potential to be the oppressor lay within each one of us. The main point of these first six verses over here, Genesis 6, 1, now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, and Sarah dealt harshly with her, and he fled from her. The main point of the first six verses of chapter 16 is this shocking revelation that Abram and Sarai, the father and the mother of the Jewish nation, Heroes of the faith to those who are fleeing Pharaoh, the shocking revelation is that here in these first six verses, Abram and Sarah are depicted as perpetrators of oppression of the worst sort. They, listen, I'm going to try to be careful with how I say things today, but you have to understand what they do to this servant girl of theirs is exploitative. They use her as a surrogate mother, a slave in their household. She's no say in how they are going to use her for the purpose of bringing about a child for Abram. And not only do they abuse her and enslave her and exploit her, but then after she does what they want her to do, Sarai treats her harshly with afflicted to the point where she has to run away into the wilderness. If you are used to reading the Bible and seeing the people in the Bible as your heroes, Sarah and Abraham do this horrific thing. And it really began to blow my mind when I see and I was listening to a Jewish rabbi speak about the Hebrew because I'm not very good at Hebrew. Okay? I'll just confession. So I listened to this Jewish rabbi speak about rabbi speak about the Hebrew used in these verses. And there are three things here that when I saw them, it, 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 it completely, I had to sit in worship and in awe and in fear of God before I could go on and write any more of my sermon. Because what happens here is there, there's a couple things that are, do, that, that, are, that are here in this text that are connecting this text in Genesis 16 to this text in Genesis 15 that I showed you before. Number one, he says, no, for certain your offsprings will be sojourners. The word sojourner or the sojourner in Hebrew, Hebrew doesn't use vowels. So how you spell the sojourner in Hebrews is H-G-R. Abram Sarah, or Abram's Sarah's servant, whose name is H-G-R. Now, if that's the only thing, that would be weak. It would be a coincidence. There's a couple other things in this text. Secondly, in, in the Lord does not name the country that these Hagars, that these sojourners, Hagars, he does not name the country that these Hagars will be sojourning in. Moses is writing these people to, who know very well which country in which they've been enslaved for the past 400 years. Moses is writing this to the children of of Abraham wandering in the desert who have just left Egypt. And so what they are confronted here, twice actually in these six verses, uh, Hagar's, the servant of Sarai's nationality, is actually spoken of twice in 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 these verses. 
And finally, the word that is used here, they will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. This is a very special word that is only used in the Old Testament, generally speaking, to speak of the affliction the Israelites and the oppression the Israelites experienced under slavery in Egypt. But the same word, even though it only hardly ever appears every other place has to do with enslavement in Egypt, it's used right here in verse 6, and Sarah afflicted her and she fled from her. The off, Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is making all of these linguistic connections in these first six verses. And the point that has been driven home is this. You hate Pharaoh because he oppressed you. You hate Pharaoh because he enslaved you. You hate Pharaoh because he afflicted you. But I want you to understand that the propensity and the potential for oppression is not only in the Egyptian, it is in you, child of Abraham. It's a sobering, sobering realization. Because we, when we read literature, or when we watch a movie, or when we read history, what do we do? I just watched... Avengers. Some of you guys have seen that. You watch a movie like that, and what you, what you do is you identify yourself in the hero, or sometimes when you're watching that movie, listening to that story, or reading history, you identify yourself either as the hero or as the victim. But rarely do you watch a movie, rarely do you read a novel, rarely do you study history, and as you're you're excited because you're seeing yourself in the villain. That's not how we have been trained to read stories, and that's not how we've been trained to watch movies, and that's not how we've been trained to study history. We want to see ourselves as the hero of our story, right? We want to be the bold, heroic ones. And if we can't be the bold, heroic ones, then we want to see ourselves as the victim that needs to be rescued. But we do not, and we have not, and we are not trained to see ourselves as the villainous oppressor. And that is what Moses is doing in this chapter. Children of Abraham, you have to understand this propensity for oppression is within each one of us. Uh, this is what freaks people out when they study the Holocaust. Right? When you study the Holocaust, people get freaked out because they realize that these evil Nazis that they've heard about were regular, ordinary men and women. There's a rabbi, uh, Yehuda Bauer, who's a Holocaust expert, and he wrote a book called Rethinking the Holocaust, and he says, this is what chills us when we study oppression. The horror of the Holocaust is not that it deviates from human norms, the horror is that it didn't. What happened may happen again to others, not necessarily Jews, perpetrated by others, not necessarily Germans. We are all possible victims, possible persecutors or perpetrators, possible bystanders. We, I, I heard a, some of you, I'm, I'm not speaking of this man politically, some of you guys love him, some of you guys may not. But I, I've heard recently Jordan Peterson making the statement because he studied the psychology of, of, of oppressive regimes. And he has said, we all like to think that if we think about Nazi Germany, we all like to think that we would be the people that would welcome the Jews in our houses and hide them from the Nazis. And he said, just you must understand that statistically that is not the case. There was only a very, very, very fine number of people that actually heroically stood up. Most of the people were silent or involved complicitly in the oppression. And if you think you would be a different number in that statistic, you are probably wrong. And this is the message that Moses is speaking to the children of Israelites as they are coming out of oppression, as they possibly are wandering through the wilderness in hatred of Pharaoh, in hatred of the Egyptians, saying, listen, you guys, that propensity for oppression lay within each of you, not just in the Egyptian. Man, that's a chilling thought. It's a sobering thought. It's an important thought. If you do not understand that the, the, the potential for oppression is within you, you are a danger to yourself 
and you are a danger to others. You're a danger to yourself because you have not yet understood the nature of the human heart. You're a danger to yourself because you have not seriously considered the wickedness and sin that is within and lay and the depravity that lay within each one of us. And if you do not understand your need for a Savior, you will reject Jesus as Savior and go to hell because you haven't understood the reality of your being as a human being created in the image of God, but fallen into total and complete and utter depravity. And you will be ignorant of your spiritual state before a holy God, and you will reject the Savior who said, I did not come for the righteous, Jesus said. I came for the wicked, because the people who don't know they're sick reject the doctor. And unless you see your need for the Savior, you will go to hell. And you are a danger to yourself if you do not see within yourself the potential that you may be the oppressor. And you are a danger to others. Because listen, I'm going to talk to you people over here, young people. You, we live in a day and age that is consumed with this idea of justice, do we not? And we just think if we throw off the systems of injustice, then, then we'll live in this sort of utopia. People were celebrating the 200th anniversary of Karl Marx this week. And there's a naivety there to say if we just throw off the oppressors, we'll bring in utopia. No, in history, when we've thrown off the oppressors and we're not aware that the potential to be oppressor is within us, we throw off the, oppress the oppressors and we set up and we prop up a new system of oppression and it's usually us. You are a danger to others if you do not understand the propensity and the potential for oppression lay within. This is the message that Moses is speaking loud and clear through Genesis 16. Our father Abraham, our mother Sarah, they were enslavers, they were oppressors, they, they, they sexually exploited this woman who was in their household. It should horrify us. It should terrify us. How do we get to this point? How do we get to this point? I want to make a really clear point right here. How do we get to this point? We get to this point when we reject the revelation of God and we substitute in our cultural common sense. That is what Abram and Sarah do. Moses deliberately describes the exploitation of Hagar as a deliberate echo of the sin of Adam and Eve. Who were, who were commanded one thing, but instead of hearing the Lord's command, they looked and they saw what they could see with their eyes. And there's, there's again, there's linguistic connections in the text um, connecting the sin of Sarah and, 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 and Abram to Adam and Eve. The Genesis 16, 2, he listened to the voice of Sarai. Genesis 3, 17, to, God, to Adam, God said, because you've listened to the voice of their wife. He says here this idea of uh, Sarai took Hagar and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife, is the exact same construction as, as Eve when she takes of the fruit and eats and gives some to her husband who's with her and he eats. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a parallel going on here, showing that Abram and Sarah are falling from God's commandment just as Adam and Eve had done before them. And how do we do this? It's when, it's when we reject God's commandments you, you've listened to, you, you eat from the tree, which I commanded you, thou shalt not eat of it. We have a God who is the moral creator of the universe, who has established his law within us, and who has revealed to us his ways, and yet we reject them repeatedly, and we go after the common sense of the world system. We reject God's revelation, go after the wisdom of the world, and when we do that, that is when we unleash the potential of our oppression. I want to show you two ways in which Abram does this. Abram violates the revelation of God in Genesis 1.27. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God reveals to us that every human being is created in his own image. Meaning that every human being is created with 
an intrinsic value, an intrinsic dignity, an intrinsic worth within themselves as created in the image of God. And yet, Abram and Sarah have turned away from the revelation of God to oppress and exploit this member of the human race who is in their own household. They treat her as an instrument to the ends of procuring a child rather than actually seeing, valuing the dignity of her as a daughter of God created in the image of God. They've turned away from God's revelation. And the cultural common sense, what they do in this, this was cultural common sense. There's actually, outside of the Bible, you can find ancient law codes that describe this, that if you don't have children, what you can do is you can take a servant in your household and you can impregnate her and, and her kids will be the, the mistresses of the household. It's in the, the Hammurabi text. I don't know how to say that. There's, there's actually three or four different ancient texts that talk about this. It was cultural common sense and it was a damnable sin in the eyes of God who created every human being in his own image. You can go along with cultural common sense and be rejecting God's word and that is what is happening here. The other way in which they reject God's word is in Genesis 2.24, God's word about marriage. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They shall hold fast to their wife. They shall become one flesh sexually, and out of which there will be children. Abram and Sarai introducing another party into that marriage bond. And they think they can get away with it. Look, there's a, there's a, I, I, don't, I don't know how other, else to understand this, but in this, in this description of marriage, marriage is a chain that can be unbroken. It's a chain of four things in Scripture. The chain of marital commitment. Till death do us part, lifelong commitment. The chain of marital commitment is connected to the chain of relational intimacy. Right? You're, you're committed to one another. That is why you can actually be with one another and intimate with one another because you know you will not violate that commitment. So marital commitment is changed to relational intimacy which is chained to sexual activity. That is why sex within marriage is safe and a, and a reflection of that intimacy because it is within that bond of commitment. And the last link of the chain is this leads to reproductive outcome. And you cannot separate these things in God's chain of how he's created human relationship and human sexuality. But what every culture has attempted to do, I don't know what that, so that sound is. What every culture attempts to do from the beginning of time is to break the links in that chain. And that's what Abraham and Sarah are doing, for example. They're, they're trying, Abraham and Sarah are trying to get the last link in that chain, reproductive outcome, but they're breaking it, trying to sever it from relational intimacy and marital commitment. And what happens immediately after they do that is Sarai becomes jealous of Hagar and begins mistreating her. Well, of course she does, because you can't separate reproductive outcome from relational intimacy. They find they can't do it, and she immediately begins to mistreat Hagar, even though Hagar has done what she wants her to do. We do this today. We, we do this so much. Our culture, our culture is almost built upon this idea that we can sever the links of this chain and be okay for it. We try to separate sex from the bonds of marital commitment, and we get our heart hurt again and again, and we hurt others. Or we try to imagine that we can separate sex from relational intimacy and we begin using each other as objects of our exploitation. It's horrific. We, we, we make people into objects for our pleasure rather than people to be loved. Or, or we separate sex from the outcome of childbearing. And heaven forbid, if a child should dare to be conceived, we act surprised as if, how could that happen? It happens because that's what it does. But we're so offended that it happened that we will slaughter the infant. Because how dare... Nature tell us that this chain cannot be broken. 
There is so much oppression in our society that is built and is based upon this idea that we can sever these chains and you cannot. And when you try, you will be hurt, you will hurt others, you will be oppressed, and you will be the oppressor. Youth and young people and old people. This is, this is not, we're not being prudes when we're trying to preserve this idea of sexual intimacy within marriage. We are trying to save you. But we become the oppressor when we say, God, I don't want to hear your word. I don't trust your word. I think we can do this another way. Man, we, we, we have human trafficking, child pornography. We've done everything we can to sever these connections. And, and we, are, we, are, we are weeping as a society and accountable. Oh, we need Jesus. We need to recognize that potential for oppression lay within us all when we turn away from God's word, following cultural common sense, hurting ourselves, hurting others. All right, it gets better. <laughs> I told you it's a hard passage. It's a hard word. Here's the second point that I, I, I want to pull out from this passage today is the second is victims of oppression need to know that God hears and sees them, right? What would you say in the wilderness? What would you say to you, your, your, your former self when you are under oppression? If you could tell anything, what would you say? You would say victims of oppression need to know that God hears and sees them. Hagar flees into the wilderness and, and here's the, where the next astonishing thing happens. God reveals himself to this lowly slave woman. She's one of the few people in the Bible who gets this, 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 this personal relationship, revelation of God that comes through the person of the angel of the Lord. And she has a conversation with the Lord through his angel. This lowly servant girl speaks to God through his angel. And, and, and she learns two things in this encounter with God. First, she learns God hears and God sees. She needs to know, it has to sink into her heart that God has heard her cry and has seen her in her oppression. That's first. And the second thing she learns is that though great evil has been committed against her, he is going to bring good out of it. Remember that's the theme of Genesis? What you meant for evil, God has meant for good. Hagar gets that from God in this encounter. I hear you, I see you, and I can work good out of it, Hagar. Here's how God tells her this. In Genesis 16.10, she, God tells Hagar that though this child was conceived in oppression, though, which is the definition of rape, it will not be the end of her story, but the beginning of her legacy. God tells her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. It's been a great theme of the book of Genesis is this theme of legacy, is this theme of passing on something to future generations and building something through future generations. And Hagar gets the same promise Abram has gotten before. I will do something great through this Hagar. And to give her a continual reminder of this promise, the angel of the Lord says this to her, Behold, you, will be pregnant, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, which means God hears. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. No matter what lays in front of Hagar, no matter what lays in front of her, every time she holds that child to her breast, every time she calls him in for dinner, there will be a continual reminder to her, God hears you. Just the thought of her in the wilderness being confronted and consoled with that promise of God, imagine what that will do to Hagar, and we don't need to imagine because we'll see this. Hagar responds to God's promises in worship. It says, so she calls on the name of the Lord who spoke to her, 
And, and, and so God has just said, I want you to name your son God Hears. And she says, okay, God, I hear you. And I'm going to worship you now. And I, I'm going to call on you. And she nicknames God. She gives God a new nickname that is her nickname for God alone. No one else in Scripture to this point has given God this name. She has a nickname for God. And I want to tell you about this nickname thing. I, I, with my little daughter, Noemi, we're going through a devotional book for toddlers. It's on the names of God. And I have nicknames for my kids. I, I give, and sometimes my kids like them, and often they don't. Um, but we were talking about, when, when she's going through this book, I was saying, these are God's nicknames. And there's 40 of them in this book. And Noemi says, why does God have so many nicknames? And I say, Noemi, you know I give you nicknames every day. It's because I love you and I think you're great. That's what I told her. And I said, here's the deal. When somebody is loved and they are great, we give them nicknames because we're so excited about them and who they are. And I said, God is so great. He's got more nicknames than all of us. And, and, and Hagar, in the wilderness, gives God a nickname. And her nickname for God is, you are Jehovah Ra. You are the God who sees and she builds an altar to him. And she names this well, Bir Laharoi, which means this is the well of the living one who sees me. In her abuse, and in her exploitation, and in her oppression, it has sunk into her heart. God has heard. God has seen. And God can do good out of this. It's an amazing story. Abram and Sarah, the potential for oppression is within you. And children of Abram, the potential of oppression is within us. But God here speaks to the victim and says, look, I'm here. I hear you. I see you. And she says, yeah, God, you do. There's one other aspect of this encounter with the angel I think is important to Hagar and to us. These two truths, that God hears her cry and stands with her, and that great, even though great evil is committed against her, God can do good out of them. It forms a new identity for her. She's no longer a victim. She, describes, she knows she is the one whom God sees and cares for. And God shows her and reveals to her that she will no longer be a victim of this by telling her some things about her son Ishmael that God hears. And what he tells Ishmael is that her son, or what she te he tells Hagar is that her son, and he says, he will be a wild donkey of a man. Now, I don't know if that's a nickname that you'd be used to hearing. What does that mean? And it sounds a little bit like an insult, doesn't it? Because we don't understand their culture, and we are like a wild donkey. If I went and called someone a wild donkey of a man, they'd probably smack me. But every commentator I read explained it in the same way. This is what Hagar would have heard. Your son will be strong and free. That's the point of the wild donkey. Hagar, you're not a victim anymore, and your son is not going to be a victim. In fact, your son is going to be wild and free. In fact, there's going to be a conflict. There will be ongoing conflict between you know, the other children and him. But don't worry, your son is going to be it. He's going to be strong and free. This cycle of oppression and victimhood is going to end. Because you're not a victim. You're the one who God hears, and you're the one who God sees, and you're the one who God cares for. Parents, do you realize the power you have in modeling strength and resilience to your children? I, I, I just see that here in this passage. I don't know if I'm reading that in. I'm, forgive me if I am, but do you see? The, the cycle of oppression is going to be ended. Her son is not going to be a victim. He's going to be strong and free, a wild donkey. What an amazing promise. And church, one of the ways in which we can be the eyes and ears of God to people is to see and to hear them when they cry out so that they know that God sees and hears their cry. They may be weeping in the wilderness. They may be weeping at the back of the church. They may be weeping in your coffee break room, in your office. 
But we are God's people. We are the embodiment of the Savior, the church. And we go into those places when we see that oppression. We come alongside those who are hurting. And, and the one message we have to give, and we don't know exactly what to do in those situations, but the one thing we can do is let them know that we see them, that we hear them, and that God sees them, and that God hears them. They need not be a victim. They can be the one whom God sees and whom God cares for. What an amazing encounter they have with God in the, what, she, what Hagar has with God in the wilderness. It's awesome, man. It's awesome. There's a third part to this story. And that's this. Perpetrators of oppression need to know that God hears and sees them. Right? I started this out with this idea in the wilderness. If, if you, children of Israel, could go back and say one thing to your oppressor, if you could go back and confront Pharaoh with one thing that you would pray that would sink into his heart, what would it be? Pharaoh needs to know that God sees and hears him and that judgment awaits. That is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. He needs to see and to hear that. Hagar is no longer a victim here. She is a daughter of God equipped with promises and presence. And I think we would read this passage wrongly. And i got to be very careful here. We would read this passage wrongly if we see Hagar, God's sending of Hagar back to Abram and Sarai as the sending of a victim back to her abusers. I do not believe that that's what this passage is about. It's about God reforming Hagar's identity and sending her to Abram and Sarah as a prophetic voice to them. And I believe Abram hears the message loud and clear. And how do I know that it's, it's here? In 6.15. She goes back. Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram, Abram, called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. So this message of your son's name that was a comfort to Hagar in the wilderness, you're going to have a son and you're going to name him Ishmael because I hear you. This message has now been communicated back to Abram. And he's received this message so that when Hagar bears him a child, he names the son. God hears. Look, this could be a word. I, I pray that this would be a word sent back to perpetrators of oppression that would lead them to repentance. If it is not a word leading to repentance, it will be a word leading to judgment. It's the word that Pharaoh needs to hear. He needs to know that for his wickedness he will be judged and it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hand of the living God. It is the word that Abraham need, needed to hear. It is the word that we need to hear. We will be judged before the living God for the works that we do in the body, for how we have oppressed others, for how we have sinned against the Lord. And it is a word that will either lead to repentance or lead to judgment. If you are here today, I pray you will hear the word that leads to repentance. I want to read a letter because this is a, a difficult passage to read and to hear. And I want to read a letter because, because this passage, I was talking, there's a woman in our church, she's not here today, she's just started coming. She's a lawyer and she works with, she's a lawyer and she works with family law and she works specifically with, with people who are um, victims of domestic violence. And we read through this passage together this week. And at, at first glance, she read it and she said, ah, because she was reading at first, she was seeing Hagar as a victim being told to be sent back to her abuser rather than as a prophet being sent with a word of repentance or judgment. And I just to be clear, I want to read this letter that was written by a pastor in Australia. It was posted on the Gospel Coalition website. It is a letter to the perpetrators of 
domestic violence. And I want to read this for you. Dear abuser. Oh, and the reason why he wrote this letter was because there was a study in Australia that was done by a woman named Julie Baird in which she quoted sources, and this is where we need to be very careful. She, she, she recorded sources stating that evangel this was a study they had done in Australia, that evangelical men who attended church sporadically were more likely than men of any other religious group to commit acts of domestic violence. That is chilling. So he penned this letter to his church. Dear abuser, I want to make it clear that if you want to evoke Bible verses to control and manipulate your wife, the Bible is against you. If you harm your wife physically, sexually, emotionally, or materially, Jesus stands against you. To hide behind the Bible in order to justify how you treat your wife is vile. Justifying your attitudes and actions with the Bible is like blaming the cookbook for the food poisoning you because you cooked the meal with putrid meat. The issue isn't with the book, but what you brought out of the fridge. You are destroying your family, dishonoring God, and deceiving yourself. I have met men like ones described in Julia Baird's article. Not many, but a couple. When their anger was exposed, they became even more heated. When we assisted their families, they stormed out. When we called on them to repent, they admitted no wrongdoing and instead tried to play the victim. When we told them to leave the church, they were vindictive and spread all matter of falsity. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, warning him of men who would attempt to worm their way into relationships with women for all manner of evil intent. He says of such people, they are men of depraved minds who as far from the faith is concerned are rejected. There's no place among the followers of Jesus for violence or harsh words, for sexual manipulation, for financial leverage, or for making threats. Blaming tiredness or stress or alcohol and drugs doesn't cut it. These are symptoms of a deeper issue in your heart all such abuse is inexcusable, a betrayal of the standard set for husbands by the creator of marriage. And I would say to wives as well, because 20% or so of domestic violence is committed against men. Thankfully, these scenarios have been rare during my pastorate. I know many more men who, with their wives, are faithfully serving the Lord Jesus in their marriages. And it is a joy to see their loving homes flourishing with all the warts and occasional grumpiness mixed in. I am thankful that the research Bear draws on not only highlights the disturbing incidents of domestic violence among the fringe dwellers and occasional members of conservative Protestant churches, but also includes this important conclusion that conservative Protestant men who are regular church attenders are the least likely demographic to abuse their wives out of any group, religious or not. So I know, in a sense, I'm speaking to the choir here if you are a regular attender, but I cannot be naive because we cannot see into your homes. That's what he says actually next. But I am also painfully aware that I do not see everything that happens in the privacy of people's homes or in the secret thoughts of people's hearts. It's possible that you may have slipped under my radar completely, which is why I'm doing the unusual thing of writing to you an open letter. If you are abusing the family that God has entrusted into your care, the issue is not with the Bible, but with your refusal to trust and believe what it says. Maybe there is a tendency in our culture to dissolve differences between men and women. It's true that our culture devalues both headship and service. They're assumed to be evils that inhibit our individual freedom. But your abusive conduct is not the biblical alternative. The model for marriage the Bible offers is good and beautiful. It depicts men and women as complementary. It upholds the dignity of both, their equality and their difference. It takes its pattern from the person of Jesus Christ who loved his bride, the church, and gave himself up for her. Headship is not wielding power over another, but it is the exercise of responsibility in love for the flourishing of others. Submission is not the forced subjugation of a person to a cruel authority, 
but a choice freely made to honor a person and acknowledge the weight of responsibility God has placed on his shoulders. And it's because because of that responsibility the Bible places on husbands that it takes abuse and family violence so seriously. Revealing abuse in whatever context is taking place is necessary. If you are a perpetrator, there is no road to salvation that does not involve the bright light of truth shining into your heart and onto your behavior. Mercifully, the God who is against us in our arrogance and violence is also full of mercy when we turn to him in humility and begin the long, hard road of repentance. There's only four words this whole sermon's about. God hears and God sees. To the victim suffering under oppression, God hears and God sees and get help. He's the one who cares for you. He can make good from evil. You don't have to, no longer have to be a victim. God hears and God sees. To the perpetrator of oppression, which could be us all, know this, God hears and God sees. And it can be a word that leads to repentance, salvation. And it can be a word that leads to judgment. Heavenly Father, this is such a weighty message to just be thrown into the middle of the book of Genesis. I never knew starting out this week that you had such weight and such depth in these words that you had for us this weekend. Sobering words. I pray for men and women in our congregation, God, who at times have been in that place of abuse and oppression. Lord, I pray, God, that they would know today that you hear and you have seen and you have cared for them. I pray, God, that you will make them wild donkeys, strong and free. I pray that the promise of Ishmael will be one that they take with them, that God is the God who hears and God is the God who sees. He's the living one who sees. I pray that nickname for you might be their nickname for you. I pray, God, that you also humble us before your mighty hand, that we recognize that the potential for oppression lay within us all. I pray that you keep us very close to you and close to your word, that we would reject the lies of our culture. And I pray, God, for any here who do not know you and are wicked in their their oppression, their abuse of others, God. If there is any here, God, I pray, God, that you will reveal to them that you see and that you hear them as well. I pray, God, that you might bring them to repentance. I pray that you might bring people in their care to safety. God, you are a good God and you speak directly to us. And we're so thankful for your word that saves and your son who delivers. In your name we pray. Amen.